Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. You know, a couple of hundred years ago, our founding fathers suggested to us and our founding documents, based on their belief in the sovereignty of God, that were endowed by our Creator with what? Certain unalienable or inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not just happiness, but the right to pursue it. Well, how's that gone? Are those three pretty good stars by which our destiny is to be guided? I would suggest to you that the answer is no. It's not that I don't believe in life, liberty, and the freedom to pursue that happiness, but those fall short, at least according to Scripture and according to what Jesus taught. They're laudable human goals, but they do not bring us to the end of the race. Um, Not a single one of us is guaranteed life. I would suggest to you that maybe life isn't an inherent right. It's a gift of God. And those are two different things. Liberty, without freedom from sin and death, is in fact temporary enslavement. Let's take a look at the pursuit of happiness. Just look at the last hundred years or so in American history. Go back to the year that this church was started. This church is a hundred and how many years old now? 107, do, your, do our math, yeah. 1915 to 2022 in November. You know, when they founded this church across the street in Fort Worth Hall, uh, we were in the middle of a war, even though we were not engaged in it. A time of desperation and despair around the world. We were in the middle of a world war. A time of adversity, not prosperity. Uh, and then what happened at the end in 1918? Well, yeah, there was the Treaty of Versailles, a temporary treaty that really led us into World War II but also a plague hit, the Spanish flu. Killed millions and millions of people around the globe, time of adversity. But we came out of that in the pursuit of happiness, the roaring 20s, we recovered. Everything was going well, at least in this country, as Europe struggled to rebuild. Time of prosperity in the pursuit of happiness. And then what happened? in the fall of 1929, the Great Crash, and the Depression, and hardship, and war for the next 15 or 16 years, time of adversity, not happiness. And we came out of that with the builder generation, and some of you are part of that builder generation, a time of great hope and prosperity 
the building of an interstate system across this nation, connecting us on superhighways, pointing us to a space race that our president promised us before the end of the 60s, and I didn't believe it as a young boy, <laughs> that we would walk on the moon, and we did. Time of prosperity. And then what happened? The 70s came, and divisiveness in our nation with the disagreement about Vietnam, inflation, protest, suspicion and doubt, Watergate, the 70s was not a time of peace and prosperity. It was a time of, I remember, hmm, sitting in long gas lines and inflation and recession at the same time. And then the 1980s and 90s came. Prosperity and economic boom, the pursuit of happiness seemed to come full flower. And a peace dividend, which we were supposed to cash in, put down your arms, turn them into plowshares. But we know what happened. That period of prosperity did not continue for long for what happened in 2001. The towers came down, terrorism was rampant, economic volatility and a great recession in 2008, 9, and 10. And today, COVID, oh, another plague 100 years later. Recession and inflation. So how does this pursuit of happiness, how far does it really get us? You see what I'm, I'm saying? You know, when we look at the candles for Advent, um, the first candle, you can look at the bottom of your bulletin. We're going to talk about that in our benediction. The first one is what? Hope. Remember what we said about hope. Hope is not hope without faith. Without faith, hope is nothing but a wish. This first candle is not the wish candle. This candle is the hope candle, and there's a difference. What's the next one? This is not the pacification candle. This is not the treaty candle. This is not an accommodation candle to the world. This is the what? Peace candle. And we celebrated that last week with our cantata that sang all about that peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives unto you, give I unto you. We have a peace that comes from him that passes what? All understanding. Well, what is this candle? The beautiful pink candle. It's not the happiness candle, folks. It's not the pursuit of happiness candle. It goes beyond happiness. It goes beyond happiness to what? Joy. You see, the stars that guide our destiny are not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they are what? The hope that we have based on our faith in Jesus Christ, the peace that he gives us that can come only through him, through the Prince of Peace that we celebrate at this time of Advent, and joy that transcends all happiness and adversity and prosperity. I'm going to talk about the joy that transcends adversity this week from Psalm 30. And next week, we're going to finish because we're not going to stay here for an hour and a half and cover the whole psalm this morning.
In the last half, we're going to talk about how God then gives us joy in prosperity. Don't misunderstand that title. I'm not saying that he brings prosperity like the world brings it, but there is a joy that he can help us understand and come to even in times of prosperity. But today I want to talk about the adversity side. Psalm 30 is a psalm of David. If you look at your text in your Bible, if you have your Bible with you this morning, it probably has a heading at the top that says it is a thanksgiving for deliverance from death. And the subtitle underneath that says that it is a song of dedication of the house. What all that means, I'm not sure, but we're going to look at the life of David this morning to understand what this thing called joy really means that we celebrate at Advent. It could have been from 2 Samuel 5. The background could have been from 1 Chronicles 14, parallel passage where it talks about David preparing to dedicate the palace, the house that he has built. David by that time had reigned for seven years in Hebron and then had united Israel after a civil war and had taken Jerusalem from the Jebusites and in fact established his home there. And the king of Tyre, Hiram, had sent cedar wood and stonemasons and builders to help him build his great palace. It could be that is the background of this psalm. It also could be his preparing to build the temple, 2 Samuel 24, in parallel passage, 1 Chronicles 20 and 21. I'm not sure. It may have been that. David never built the temple. He never had permission from God to build a temple, but he planned to do so. And there's a story behind that that we will talk about next week. But it results in this. David purchases a plot of land from Arona, the Jebusite. In Chronicles, he's called Ornon. He purchases that land, and for reasons that we will divulge next week, if you don't remember them, he then builds an altar at that point. And he anticipates building the house of God on that plot of land. He doesn't do it. It's his son that does it, Solomon. We know that. But it could be against that background that he writes this hymn of dedication. We don't know for sure. What we, what we do know, it is later used, maybe, at the dedication of the second temple in 515 B.C. Very similar to some passages in Ezra and Nehemiah, and we do know this from the Talmud, that this psalm that we read this morning, the first five verses at any rate, was used at a festival for dedicating the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated the temple, and Judas Maccabeus defeated Antiochus and his troops and established what came close to being a theocracy in Israel in the second century BC and they had a festival dedicating the temple. We don't know all of the background behind this psalm except for this. We do know that David wrote it and it's in the first book of the Psalms. The first 41 chapters of Psalms comprise the first book, most of them by David. Only four of them have no titles and the rest of them are entitled by his authorship. Half of these Psalms are laments. This is not a lament this morning. It's a, it's a, Thanksgiving psalm, but it's a thanksgiving for delivery from difficulty. Most of these psalms in this first book are about David's life, or come from David's life, and the troubles that he experienced, and turning to God as his deliverer. And this particular psalm is one of only 13 psalms in the whole book that are thanksgiving. And it's born out of lament. 
It's sandwiched in between two psalms that have to do with lament. Psalm 29 has to do with hope and delivery from difficult situations. And the one that comes right after it, David is seeking refuge in the Lord. In this psalm this morning, as we talk about joy, as we talk about what it truly is, we see that God can rescue us from adversity in the first five verses. Next week, what I want to do is to talk about not going from mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, to mourning, that is the daytime. Next week, we're going to talk about going from mourning to dancing in the last part of the psalm. But this morning, I want to talk about the first part, the first five verses. You know, often at funerals or memorial services, I will make this comment, especially to the family. I will quote or paraphrase verse number five. Weeping, crying, endures for the what? For the night. It may last all night long. We may weep in our bed in the evening until dawn comes. But then what comes in the morning? Joy comes in the morning. If we're not careful, we can treat that rather frivolously as a kind of shibboleth. Weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And then we, we pat people on the shoulder and say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. No, it is much deeper than that. You see, in this psalm, David, in the first part, in the first five verses, talks about three very deep fears that we have, three great dreads that we have in life that he has faced and the Lord has helped him overcome. One of those is the threat to our security, and we all experience that at some time or another. A second one is an attack on our health, a threat to our health. And we all experience that sooner or later. And the final has to do with life itself and the dread of mortality. We know that we are all mortal. We know that we don't live on this earth forever. We know that we're not going to live to be 969 years. Thank God. (laughs) Especially as our bones begin to creak. But David deals with these three things, you see. Let's stand together as we read the first five verses. Threats to our security, attacks on our health, and the dread of mortality. Listen to those themes come out. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. God's people did say, amen. Let's have a seat. You see, the first of these is a threat to our security. In verse number one, we're told that he uplifts us so that our enemies may not rejoice over us. And when we look at the life of David, we see this, oh, to be so true. He was a man of war, a man of blood. He was constantly engaged in battle. Sometimes God gave him outright victory over his adversaries when he was besieged on all sides. For example, with the Amalekites to his south, those descendants that lived in the Negev, the descendants of Esau through his son Eliphaz, 
They plagued David through the early part of his reign, especially when he lived in exile with the Philistine, before that with the Philistines. The Amalekites were attacking from the south in a pincer movement with the Syrians coming from the north, from Damascus and Beth Rehob and Zobah. And God delivered Israel through David's mighty hand. Sometimes the threat came from the east. It came from all sides. Sometimes it came from the east across the Jordan with the descendants of Lot through his daughters, the Moabites to the southeast just across from the Dead Sea, and sometimes from the Ammonites from the north part across from the Jordan. But God delivered David with outright victory over them, and he subdued them. Sometime it came from the southeast, from the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. Remember those that had blocked Israel's path in their exodus journey, and God gave him victory over the Edomites. And then the Canaanites, the Geshurites, who lived in the desert the, between the Arabah and the Philistines. Sometimes it was the Gezrites and the Judean foothills. And finally, we see, as we said a moment ago, he took Jerusalem from the Jebusites. God delivered time and time and time again David from defeat by his enemies. Sometimes it was delivery through repeated attack. And there we know who that was. It was the Philistines. From the time that he saw Goliath and defeated him, to his old age, the Philistines were a thorn in his and Israel's side. Six times he engaged them in either personal or army battle. Final victory, in fact, did not come at the hands of David, as a matter of fact. When we look at First Chronicles 20, we see that it wasn't David that went to battle against them, but it was his mighty men. They said, David, you're too old. <laughs> you stay home. You're too valuable. You stay home. We'll take care of this. And his mighty men finally defeated the Philistine giants. Sometimes it was God delivering him from the rejoicing of his enemies that would defeat him, like his own son, Absalom, who deceived the people and tried to usurp his crown. Or Sheba, afterward, when David was reinstalled as king, the Benjamite with a grudge for his ancestor Saul, leading a civil war against David. What God did in these instances was that he vindicated David so that his name was unsullied. He restored him so that his enemies could not rejoice over him. Well, what does that have to do with us? Folks, we face all kinds of problems and tribulations in life. Difficulties, and in fact, enemies. People sometimes that do not want to see us prosper on a national scale, sometimes on a personal scale. And it also has to do with the problems and difficulties and struggles that we have in life the tribulations that we face. And we know through the life of David and the promise of Scripture that God can deliver us from those enemies. And we should do something about it. We should pray to God. We should pray to God in every moment of tribulation and knowing this, that God can help us. God can bring us that joy so that our enemies do not rejoice over us. When life's problems besiege us, and our opponents want to bring us down, whoever they may be. We need to remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 46. We need to remember the hymn of Martin Luther. God indeed is our refuge and our stronghold. A very what? Present help in trouble. There's a second great dread that we have, and that's the attack on our health in verse 2. He heals us when we cry to him for help. David lamented. 
Time and time again, he had a chronic illness. We're not sure what it was. We're uncertain of its nature. But Psalm 30 talks about it here. And in fact, it may express an answer that David has already received from the Lord. The Lord has healed him. It may be answering his plea in Psalm number 6, where he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. (laughs) Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. I don't know what the illness was. And I don't know what illness you may have struggled with or what you will face in the future. But God wants to heal you according to his will, either now or forever. He may not heal you now, but he can heal you forever. But he has the power to heal you now. And he had the power to heal David then, and he did. And and David in this psalm rejoices that God has healed him. There are several references in the psalms to David talking about the sickness that is in his bones. And that may give us a hint as to what his chronic illness was. He says that his bones were sorely vexed, that his bones were out of joint, that his bones were wasting away, that his bones had no health in them, that he had burning bones. Well, I don't know what the illness was, but it it sounds to me like it may have been something like osteoporosis. I don't know. In Psalm 31, he says, For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years are spent with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity, and my bones grow weak. It could have been osteoporosis. It could have been rheumatoid arthritis. We don't know. It could have been cancer of the bones. But he had an illness, and God healed him. The obvious parallel we find in Scripture a little bit later sounds very much like this. When Hezekiah was told by God through Isaiah that you're going to die, and not sometime in the future everybody dies, you're about to die. It's imminent. And what did Hezekiah do? He didn't just shrug it off. He lamented. When he was told that he would die soon, he, he's in his bed. It's suggested, implied he's in his bed. He turns his face to the wall. He's depressed. And he prays. Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and have done what is good in your sight. And then what did Hezekiah do? He wept bitterly. And God heard his prayer. You know that. And God then promised to heal him. And Isaiah gave him a sign that he would be healed. And as a result of that, Hezekiah writes a psalm that sounds very much like David's song. It is the living that give thanks to you, O Lord, as I do today. A father tells his sons about your faithfulness. The Lord will surely save me. So we will play my songs on stringed instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. Great celebration because the Lord has healed him. God has the power to heal, and he can And what he asks us to do is to pray to him. Whatever ailment you have, whatever illness you have, we know that we're all terminal if the Lord doesn't come before we die. But if you have an ailment or an illness, you should pray to the Lord. And don't hedge your bets. Ask for healing. If you don't ask, you don't what? You don't receive. Now, it may or may not be in the Lord's will to heal you now, even though he can heal you permanently and eternally. But God can heal us. Miraculously, he can heal us. God can use the medicine that he has given to the doctors and the nurses and our medical community to heal. He can heal. 
directly or indirectly. And Jesus demonstrated time and time and time again. He healed all kinds of diseases, and he raised the dead. Jesus is the great physician. When I visit in the hospital, usually, and if I've visited you, and if we pray, I usually commend our prayer to Jesus Christ, who is our what? Our great physician. We should pray in any kind of disease. He can heal. He has healed. He will heal, and he still can do it. The Lord heals the brokenhearted, the psalmist tells us, and he binds up their wounds. So addressing the second great dread about health, the Lord has a remedy, and we should go to him in prayer. There's a third dread, and it's the dread of mortality found in verse number three. He snatches us when we ask him to. He snatches us from the jaws of death, and not just from the jaws of death, but the despondency of bereavement. We should not be paralyzed by the fear of death. We should not be paralyzed by any fear when the Lord walks with us. You see, David trusted in the Lord whenever he faced any life or death situation. As a shepherd boy, <laughs> he didn't let that bear come in. He didn't let that lion come in and steal the sheep. He did what? He fought them and he beat them. Can you imagine being a shepherd boy on the side of the hill and the bear comes into the flock or the lion? As an unseasoned lad, without any armor, he goes out to face that giant Goliath with a bag of stones, nine foot nine tall. He has a spear that weighs 34 pounds. The head of that spear weighs 34 pounds, 13 feet long. Can you imagine? And he stands before him. Before he did, Saul said, surely you can't do this. And what did David say to him? Your servant, I, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. You see, he has taunted the armies of the living God. The Lord, the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, and he will deliver the Philistine into our hands. You see, David didn't let the fear of death or any fear when the Lord walked with him paralyze him. David was hunted relentlessly, virtually to the point of death for several years. We don't know how long. Some scholars say for seven years by Saul in the wilderness. But David didn't let that paralyze him. And in fact, when David had an opportunity on two occasions, you know this, when he got the jump on Saul and he could have killed him, David refused to do so. He said, I would never touch the hair. I would never harm the head of God's anointed. You see, he trusted God in those situations of great fear and dread to vindicate David and to deal with Saul. God protected David. He protected him through friends. He protected him through Jonathan. He protected him through his wife, Michael. He protected him through his mentor, Samuel. And on one occasion in 1 Samuel 19, God supernaturally intervened <laughs> And when Saul came to kill David, he turned Saul into a what? A prophet. Amazing. You see, David relied on God in times of great fear. David still sensed profound dread. He was human. When he faced death and the threat of death, sometimes it drove him virtually to the point of depression. So I'm not saying, friends, that what we do when we face fear is we have a Pollyanna attitude that the threat is not serious, because often it is, and David realized that. 
In Psalm 18, he says, The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. And in my distress, I called upon the Lord. I called upon my God for help. So you see, of course, the answer here is, when we face difficult circumstances that virtually paralyze us and we don't know what to do, even the fear of death, we do what? We pray. We call upon the Lord. You know, we come to the last part of this passage and we see his mourning, turning to mourning. Grief and mourning are natural responses in all three of these situations. When our security is, is challenged, when our health is attacked, and when we, when we fear for our life. You know, things don't always go the way we hope. We lose some battles in life. We, we don't always win. Friends do, in fact, betray us. Sometimes family even disappoints us. Sometimes we fail. We don't succeed at everything we do, no matter how hard we try. Hmm. And God doesn't always heal in this life. We're terminal. We all age. We decline in our vigor and our health. I'm not up to bifocals yet, but they're coming. You know what I'm talking about. Hmm. We're mortal. We're not invincible. The threat of death is very real. In fact, it's, it's certain. And David recognized this. He, he grieved at death. And that is a healthy thing to do. I know many sitting here this morning have lost a loved one within the past few months or years in some of those services we have held here, memorial services and funeral services. It is normal for us to grieve and to mourn in the face of death. David did it when he heard about the report of Saul and Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishusha, the sons of Saul, when they were killed in battle on Mount Gilboa. He grieved, he wept. When Abner, the general that had opposed him in the Civil War, then reconciled with David, then later Joab killed him, David grieved at his loss. When his little boy was born by Bathsheba, and he was sickly, David fasted and wept and begged God to heal him. He grieved when he died, and then he removed the ashes and came out of his grief because he affirmed that someday he would go to him. His son Absalom, who against the command of David was murdered by his general Joab, even though he had rebelled against David, had tried to usurp the throne, David cries out when he hears about his death, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It is normal and it is healthy for us to grieve the loss of friends, the loss of family, and even our leaders. It is normal for us to mourn. And David mourned his own mortality. Even though he hoped in the Lord, he mourned his mortality. In Psalm 6, from which we quoted earlier, he says, I'm weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed to swim with tears. I dissolve my couch with those tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of my adversaries. It is proper and it is good that we grieve and mourn in the face of death. 
David's son Solomon reminds us of this. And you probably can anticipate what I'm going to say. There is a time for everything under the sun. A time to give birth and a time to what? A time to give birth and a time to what? Die. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. There is a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. And here we are. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And we're going to talk about that next week. When mourning is turned to dancing, Jesus himself wept. Jesus himself grieved. He comes to Jerusalem and he looks at Jerusalem and he weeps for Jerusalem because he knows of its lostness and its future, and its future destruction. He wept at the home of Lazarus in John 11. And that's a rather curious passage. It never explains completely why he wept. It tells us what they thought he was doing when he wept, the Pharisees and the Jews. I believe that he wept because he truly mourned Lazarus's death, even though at the same time he knew he was going to bring him to life. You see, he, he mourned in the face of death. I think that it also highlighted the fact in that moment of mourning when Lazarus was raised from the dead, it would glorify God all the more with the joy that they had. He, he grieved in the garden of Gethsemane. My soul is deeply grieved, he said, even to the what point of death. If Jesus mourned and if Jesus grieved and if you have lost a loved one and you hold back and don't grieve, you're not following his example. Tears are important in the time of loss. In this lifetime, though, God brings joy through that adversity. Verse number five, but morning endures for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Just as hope, we said two weeks ago, springs from tribulation, just as hope comes out of difficulty and problems, joy comes out of sorrow. We, we can't escape the trials of life, friends, the frailty of health and the inevitability of death. We mourn, we grieve, we struggle, the harsh realities and the fragility of life. But through it all, what God wants us to do is to grow. To grow in the joy of faith and hope in the God of faithfulness. You see, this isn't just about happiness. It's about the deep joy of knowing. The deep joy not only of the certainty of knowledge, but the deep joy of knowing. Knowing the God who cares. Abiding with him and his abiding with us. It's knowing that he is able to deliver and is willing to do so. It is knowing that he has rescued in the past and he can do so again. It's knowing that he will never abandon us, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You see, in this life, we trust in his power to deliver, and we should pray that he does so. In the battle for the security of our life, we need to remember that he is the king of glory. David said, who is this king of glory? He's not a wimp. <laughs> the Lord is strong and mighty. The Lord is mighty in battle. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. He is able to conquer any difficulty or problem that we have if he has a mind to do so. When we face the struggle with health, we need to remember that he is our healer and our renewer. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons my iniquities and heals all of my diseases. He satisfies your years with good things so that your youth may be renewed like the eagle. We should pray in times of health crisis. 
And in our dread of mortality, we need to remember that he is the compassionate rescuer. Gracious, the psalmist says, is the Lord and righteous. Yes, you see, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, and I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. When we're faced with fears that paralyze us virtually to the point of death, we need to remember that he calls us to walk faithfully in the land of living with him. So let me come to the last point. That's about this lifetime. We need to be reminded that the candle of joy points beyond this lifetime. You see, our joy is not made perfect in this life. No matter how much difficulty we go through, no matter how much our strength is faith is, is, is uh, our faith is strengthened, no matter how deep our joy gets in this life, it's not perfect. There's going to come a, t- a time when our joy is made perfect without mourning. Someday we will lose the battle of security. We will lose the fight for good health. Sometimes we will lose the fight of life. We're mortal, but we need not despair. We hope in what? In the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord, Nehemiah tells us, is our what? Our strength. You see, these earthly problems are temporary, but God's joy is eternal. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though the outer person you see is decaying, yet the inner person is being renewed, Paul tells us day by day. For the momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond comparison. You see, we look at things not that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, the problems that we face in this life, The difficulties and challenges and threats to our safety and our health and our mortality, those things that we see today are temporary, Paul says, but the things you see that really matter are those that are unseen. They are eternal because Jesus is our final victor, and he conquers all three of those dreads. He's promised to do so. For Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is the last enemy And the resurrection of Jesus Christ has abolished death, and it will be put to death. In our Father's house, where he has prepared a place for us, there will be no sickness, there will be no mourning, and there will be no mortality. For this mortality shall have put on immortality, and this corruptible shall, shall have put on what? Incorruptibility. And he will wipe away the tear from their eyes, And there will no longer be any death, we're told by John, and no longer any what? Mourning. No more crying, no more pain, for the first things have passed away. You see, this mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, will be put away in the morning. Jesus closes the last book, the last chapter, near the very end of it by making this proclamation. On behalf of David, whose life we have looked at this morning, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. For the churches, to you, he speaks to the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. Think about that. I am the one that came out of that stump. 
I am the shoot that came out of the root of David, and I am the bright morning star. So you see, Psalm 30, verse 5, is a prophecy. Morning endures for a night, but joy doesn't just come in the daytime. It's not that kind of morning. Joy comes in the morning person of Jesus Christ, who is the morning star. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. I want to walk as a child of the light. And as we do, think about these words. I want to walk as a child of the light. I want to follow Jesus. God sent the stars to give light to the world. The star of my life is Jesus. Do you know the morning star? This morning as you're listening, no matter what difficulty, problem, or challenge you face, to security, to health, or even to your life, the answer is given in the person of Jesus Christ, who is in fact the morning star who can bring life and immortality, peace and joy to your life if you will simply resign your life to his and walk with him. Father, we thank you so much that you have sent your, your son Jesus Christ out of the stump that came out of Jesse's line, the lineage of David, born at this time of year, the Advent season, the Prince of Peace, who has come to bring us joy so that our joy may be made full and we might know you as our saving God. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.